to our history of us. Thank you for everyone joining in for this next episode of our history of us. Uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast, we are all about sharing stories, stories about our lives right now in this crazy time that we're living in, uh, discussing stories that we consume in our daily lives, and then also digging into stories from times gone by that really need to be shared and discussed as part of our history. Um, we just started out as a diversity library, then a book club, and, and now we're a podcast. So, you know, thank you to everyone who has joined in for this journey. We're so glad you're here. Um, I know it's been a little while since the last episode, but it's been a day-by-day education of what this actually looks like. And, and by this, I mean recording a podcast and really figuring out exactly what it is that we are wanting to talk about on top of everything else that's already going on in the world. And, you know, we we also may have tried to record this next episode quite a few times and just couldn't quite get it to land where we wanted it to, but I think we got it right this time. And it's actually Labor Day weekend. Uh, we have the last few days of summer, and as you can hear in the background, we do have a lot of noise from what it sounds like in the south in the summer and it's actually one of my favorite sounds um, I love that sound when I go to my parents house and it's the quintessential sound of summer in the south also this week I'm very excited that I am joined by my other half Jess um, you know Jess welcome to our history of us so let's hear a little bit about you thank you <laughs> Um, I, I'm extremely excited to, um, to be a part of this. I know these are definitely crazy times. Um, I think that we've all been feeling the gears shift with summer ending and the holiday season coming up all amidst this global pandemic, um, including the election, which I hope we'll get into a little later, but, um, I'm really, really excited to be here talking on this podcast about um, the realities that so many people are experiencing right now that in actuality many people and peoples have been experiencing for a really long time and um, I know many of these struggles ring true within the LGBTQ plus community which is very important to me because I am gay myself and I was raised in a partly um, on one side, very, very religious and conservative family and grew up between the Northeast and the Midwest and kind of had this um, split down the middle between my mother's side and my father's side of very, conserv- very conservative and very um, liberal, which I know you actually hear of, I think, a lot, in, especially in that part of, of America. Um, But right now, I am in South Florida, in Palm Beach County, riding out this very hot, hot, humid Florida summer in quarantine. A little more about me. Um, I'm 27, April 5th, so yes, I am an Aries with a Virgo moon, however. And I have really always been drawn to art um, in all of its many forms. Um, I started with costumes. I had two sisters, so I was always finding ways to make 
costumes and steal their their clothes and any of their you know um, anytime we would go to a, a church function with all of the you know where, wherever all the kids would be playing or whatever it might be I was just so fascinated with colors and the textures of fabrics and the way that they draped and moved and um, that eventually led me to um, music and drawing and photography um, even painting I mean really anything that I could possibly get my hands on any art class I was there but it was really through my um, this music that I was doing my love for music I was playing the piano and playing the saxophone and the flute um, that I kind of discovered this passion for language and was lucky enough to attend a high school with a Italian course and begged 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 my mother to let me take Italian and switch from Spanish which she very justly <laughs> justly so um, told me it would get me a job in America but um, I have to say eventually I ended up moving to Bergamo Italy which was in the north about 30 minutes from Milan to tutor English it was just for a couple of months but that experience changed everything I ended up learning I think a lot more Italian than the English that I was teaching um, but weirdly enough it was through a YouTube video that I had watched in my Italian class in high school about Italian hand gestures that I landed a job in the travel business sphere working in this kind of startup boutique company that specialized specifically in um, luxury travel but just to Italy so doing that being surrounded by a lot of expats and a lot of people that had lived in all many, in so many different parts of the world um, that I discovered this passion for storytelling and just meeting so many people through business connections and clients and just hearing so many stories and um, you know everything from families planning their annual trip to go stay on this you know beautiful vacation on the Amalfi Coast to uh, newlyweds planning this honeymoon on the Italian Riviera or even just a newly retired couple planning this lifetime trip they've always dreamed of traveling the world and now here they are with us <laughs> and um, even even those people that just wanted to reconnect with a part of their heritage and I think that we kind of all feel echoes of that feeling right now in this time that hunger to reconnect with parts of ourselves that have gotten left behind maybe along the way and you see you know, masses of people fleeing apartments in the city for literally greener pastures um, you know a huge spike in urban and community farming and I think above all else a burning desire for justice across the board no strings attached no more and I'm really excited to talk about all of the things that I've been reading and listening to this week um, I know we, we definitely want to dive into all of that good stuff as well but um, Bran tell us what you have been up to what have you been reading and and consuming so since you last heard from me not a lot has really changed especially in the COVID-19 situation uh, here in America, but you know, I'm still working from home. I'm definitely still not going anywhere. Sorry, Jesse, that I haven't come to Florida yet. <laughs> However, 
you know, you are in the epicenter of the now epidemic that we have. So, you know, I think in Charlotte, we're about to be in phase 2.5 of reopening, I think I saw in the headlines this week. And I really have no clue what that actually means, Um, you know, but props to Roy Cooper, who has been doing an amazing job throughout all of this. And, you know, I, I really have been impressed with everything that he's done. However, I still don't know what phase 2.5 means. Um, I know for me, nothing has really changed. It's just me and all my plants here. And I know that they are absolutely tired of me talking to them um, because they are the only other living thing that I have to talk to right now. So, you know, um, what I do see outside my window is that people are still prancing around in my neighborhood. And as some of you know, I live right in the middle of Noda. But, uh, you know, they're just still out there, some with masks, but most without. And also, now that the weather is finally starting to cool down a bit, it seems like there's more people than I've ever seen in Noto walking around just everywhere. And, I mean, I get it. We all want to be out and social and get out of the house. I mean, yes, I would love to get out of the house and do something, but, you know, at what cost? Um, I do know that for me it's been difficult learning how to keep work and home separate because you know I've learned that I think I need the separation so that I can not start to hate my home because it's also where I work and so I've all it's always been nice to have that separation of going into an office having that social communication uh, but then also coming home and home is your home but for me also being a, a an introvert it's very for me work wise it's very positive because i can actually get so much more done working from home because i'm not having my energy drained all day long by people surrounding me and just sucking the life out of me all day long so for me i love working from home but it's just kind of trying to learn how to to live in this world where home and work is the same place so you know i try to keep my office separate during the day um, while I'm working so mentally this is my workspace and then the rest of the house is home so I think it's kind of working but still it's it's been a challenging time but you know it's still it's been interesting trying to learn how to navigate this new world and and I also did just have a birthday a week or so ago and I turned 37 and for some reason I felt like I needed to incorporate some more adult pieces into my wardrobe. Um, And you guys that know me, you know that I am very into fashion and I wear some, you know, wackadoo stuff (laughs) pretty much every day. So from my birthday present to myself was I bought a few outfits from Dolce Gamana that were like all just black and white and I felt like it were more, they were more age appropriate for myself. And, you know, that this is, I feel like this is the time period in my life where I need to wear some, you know, clothes like this. But, and it's strangely enough, I was just rewatching a few of the Dolce Gabbana runway shows. And last year in the spring 2019 menswear show, they were showing a lot of different face masks, which kind of really creeped me out. Like, yes, they were, you know, DNG bedazzled and beautiful and exceptional but then my question is did they know something that we didn't know last year but you know i guess that they do uh cater to more asian markets as well so i guess that's why we had face masks but still it really kind of was shocking and creeped me out just a little bit that wait a minute you knew last year that we were going to need face masks this year like you know but it was really interesting and it's funny i know i've seen 
all these movies about the end of the world, but I don't remember seeing the one where it was slow. Oh, so slow. And no one actually followed the advice of medical professionals. And they would actually rather complain about all the inconveniences that it was to actually be safe and, and, and be respectful of other people than to actually do something that will save lives. But, you know, I guess that movie wouldn't really be as entertaining. But also about as entertaining as this reality has become. Exactly. And <laughs> um, interestingly enough, there is, at least it seems like, there is still so much confusion or um, perhaps just a lack of clear and concise information on a very large scale about the reasons, I think, behind um, all of the events that have been going on with um, COVID-19, with all of the movements and the, the activism and also the protests and the upheaval um, that's, you know, been shaping the world around us and this recognize this um, recognition of things that have been going on for so long but i think that's kind of you know the propaganda of it all really this sort of massive global upheaval of reality and yet other countries are already reopening borders and kind of starting to recover from the pandemic but yet here i feel like we're kind of squandering you know we're still sitting around and just waiting everyone is really just bored with it and ready to move on to something else yeah, so, and that's actually, you know, that's a really interesting thing that you say because that's one thing, like, the headlines lately have been, you know, Italy is back to being back to normal, basically. And so it's it's just funny when the when you look at the, at the juxtaposition of how it used to be back in the very beginning of this pandemic when it was, it hit Italy hard right before it came to America. And people, you know, were just saying that, you know, Italians were crazy for the way that they were handling the situation and like it would never happen that way in America. And then look at it now, like they were responsible and they did the things that needed to be done. And here we are, Americans who had the, we had the foresight. We knew it was coming. Um, I even, I remember posting on Facebook a video from people in Italy saying, um, this is what's happening. This is what we did. This is what's coming to you. So please be prepared for it we didn't prepare for it we knew it was coming and you know so here we are but you know i digress so anyway (laughs) on to the media that we consume this week um so actually jess why don't you start out with what you've been inspired by this week um yeah i mean actually aside from what i've been reading and and listening to i've been exploring around the state that i live and visiting um, a few edible forests gardens state parks and of course um, the beaches around south florida and i've been so inspired by the diversity Um, it's so just insanely beautiful how saturated in colors and patterns and textures that the native plant life is here Um, it's just breathtaking how you see the different shapes and the different movement of nature just it's it's been so wonderful um and i feel like actually i've been lucky with and kind of gifted this summer to explore this time to really dive into and appreciate the 
natural beauty of where I live and this, this place that I call home. Um, but anyways, I'll, I've also been really fascinated recently with the history of kind of human sexuality as a whole. Um, going back even to, you know, the Romans, the ancient Greeks, obviously, but even the Egyptians and Native American tribes and nations. And, um, you know, it's widely known that homosexuality had an important role in ancient Greek and ancient Roman societies and um, in many indigenous nations, transgender men and women were respected and sometimes even revered in their societies and, and had, you know, very important places. And, of course, all of that history just leading all the way up to the earlier the early 20th century when the situation for queer people and the history of what happened really started to um, not started but was really in a bad way <laughs> um and then of course leading up to the events uh, in the 1960s uh the stonewall riots and um the activists and the organizers and all of the amazing minds that were already before Stonewall starting to kind of shake the the foundation of what was existing in society with this oppression and this injustice and the people that actually started reaching out to other people like them to other people in the community to try and organize and fight back and actually stand up and try and change the reality that they were living that was so inspiring and there are so many stories that um i think have gotten lost and there are of course so many great documentaries um even on netflix um but I think on a larger scale, there are still so many stories and so many experiences and realities that queer people have lived and even then went on to write about and try and share that are lost, that are maybe floating out there somewhere in the ether that we don't know, that we don't have access to. But I think it's so important to find those stories and to uncover those experiences and amplify those voices because we as a community are only as strong as our own faith in ourselves, I think, and our own belief in justice on every level for every single member, every single person that identifies as queer. Like, what is the actual foundation of um, what we view, what we believe, and what we identify with being queer? There are so many different iterations, so many different... Um, versions of that truth because there are so many different queer people on earth and I think that by sharing stories and by helping people learn how to make their voices heard and realize that their voices do matter that our opinions do matter and the opinions of a lot of people do matter that aren't being considered as well and um, I think this is the point in time in history to start cross-organizing between all organizations, all people that are oppressed. There are so many, so many different groups of people that don't fit into this kind of shiny white picket fence idea of the American dream that feel in so many different ways blocked out from certain parts of society. And I think that that calls for 
us as a country to reimagine what our society values. And Michelle Obama gave a great speech at the Democratic Nas- National Convention um, in which she addressed so many of the pressing issues that need to be resolved in our government urgently, where we hear this radio silence, this just blaring nothingness from the Trump administration and just refusal to acknowledge so many of these issues that um, I think very desperately need to be addressed in our government and also recognized. And there's this huge imbalance, I think, in um, a lot of my peers, at least, opinion and view of their own role in all of this. I don't know anybody that voted in the primaries. Do you know anybody that voted in the primaries? I didn't even get to vote in the primaries. And that's, I think, a responsibility that so many people don't consider or, or realize. You know, if, if you do want your opinion to matter in this government, then you have to be active. You have to involve yourself. You have to inform yourself. It's a responsibility that you take on with the right to vote. It's a right. And everyone should have access to it. And I think to exercise that right, you have to be informed, you have to be involved, you have to, you know, if you if you have an opinion on something, or you maybe there's a candidate that you like, or you don't like, then vote or don't vote for them or vote for someone else. You know, I think it goes, it has to go back down to focusing on a local level, instead of just waiting around for election year to come where you watch these horrible commercials for months on end. And then the result is just something you didn't want anyways. You know, that's, it's almost like your, your voice is just being silenced for you and you don't even realize it because it just goes by so fast. But I digress. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think it's actually really important what you said about getting out to vote. Um, I think that's going to be what's critical in this election in that we get somebody in office who can, can lead the country in the way that we need it to be led. Uh, you know, for me, I think that was kind of the shock in 2016 is that we had, as a country, had come from being used to having an amazing president who, you know, was a, a, a strong, powerful leader. But uh, a lot of people, especially younger generation, didn't understand the importance of what we had. And we still have to get out and vote um, to keep the country going in the trajectory that it was. So. You know, that's going to be critical this year is everybody to get out and vote. So for me, I was shocked when I found out that the Republican National Convention was actually being held back here in Charlotte. You know, the last time that I heard anything about it, it had been moved to Florida from Charlotte because, you know, Trump was unhappy with the COVID-19 protocols here in Charlotte, which is fine by me. Um, and it was really like out of our hair here. But then all of a sudden I hear a couple of weeks ago that it's going to be back here in Charlotte. Well, I guess at least part of it was part of it was in D.C., but, you know, enough of it was here for me to be uncomfortable. But, you know, so, you know, work has been crazy busy lately. Thank God I can still work and work from home. Um, but I didn't really have much time, free time for, you know, extra media stuff over the past few weeks. But. I did kind of end up down a rabbit hole researching a lot of our LGBTQ plus history, especially pre-Stonewall period. Um, and the reason for that is we are doing a book club at work, which is part of our diversity team member network, 
which that in and of itself is so amazing that I work for a company that lets me work from home during this pandemic and also is so supportive of, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and so we're doing the Stonewall Reader as our first election, um, which I'm really excited about. Uh, the Stonewall Reader is actually this amazing work that was published last year in 2019 by the New York Public Library in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, which was in June of 1969. And it's, it's made up of all these firsthand accounts that they pulled from the library of uh, just different influential LGBTQ plus activists. Um, and it's broken down into three sections of before, during, and after the riots. Um, and so for work, we're doing, for week one, we're doing the before Stonewall section of the book. And I was so drawn in by the accounts of these amazing activists pre-1969 who were actually, you know, true pioneers in their drive for our equality. Um, and so that's kind of where I really went down the rabbit hole because when I start researching each person and really trying to understand as much as I can about them, then that drives me to do so much research and find out as much as I can about them, about their organizations, about the publications they were doing, and really just kind of trying to understand the, the climate that they were in that drove them to be activists in, you know, 1920, 1940. Like, what was it like for them doing this then? So that's what really drives me because, you know, I relate to it now being, you know, this is almost 100 years later, and I still feel like we ha we've made progress, but we haven't made much progress. And so I want to understand their fight so that it can help us to understand where we come from. Um, and so once I started really digging into the, the first section of the book, which is, again, pre-Stonewall, or before Stonewall, sorry, um, one person who really stood out to me, and I think it's just because I relate to what she said, but her name is Joan, I believe, Nestle. It could be Nestle, but it's spelled like Nestle, just like the chocolate milk. So <laughs> maybe because she also has such a share for the ocean and the sea, and her account just really spoke to me because I could see it in myself and in my experiences. Um, and so there was one quote or two that really kind of just spoke to me. So the, the first one is, uh, there were hostile encounters, the usual stares at the freak, whispered taunts of faggot, lezzy, is that a man or a woman? But did, we did not care. We were heading to the sun, to our piece of the beach where we could kiss and hug and enjoy looking at each other. And the second part, a little later, I knew that at the end of that residential hegemony was the ocean I loved to dive into, that I watched turn purple in the late afternoon sun, that made me feel clean and young and strong, ready for a night of loving, my skin living with salt, clean enough for my lover's tongue, my body reaching to give my lover's hands the fullness I have been giving to the sea. So, you know, her words are so powerful to me. I don't know if it's just because Jess and I are, I share such a strong connection to the ocean or what it is, but, you know, we do, actually, for everyone who doesn't know us, both have a tattoo of a moon wave. So, you know, that's how connected to the ocean we are. And, you know, it's funny. Her story reminds me of this one afternoon when we were at the beach and I thought I was going to drown. <laughs> that's true. We do. And... I think the inspiration, it's kind of a funny story. The inspiration behind that tattoo was 
um, yin and yang, really, kind of the balance between the ocean and the moon, the moon controlling the tides of the ocean, and it was that balance that makes everything flow, and it's such a part of how the ocean, or how the, um, you know, how the world ticks, and it's just connected to how the universe ticks, and and also, we really, really like so the So I guess I could share a bit of this story, which is, you know, from one afternoon in the middle of the summer, I guess it was probably almost two years ago, um, we went down to Miami and we went to the beach, which is a clothing optional beach um, right there near South Beach. And, you know, we were just having a, a fantastic clothing optional afternoon. Um, and then somehow just discovered that the um, there was a sandbar like out in the middle of the ocean that everybody was swimming out to. Um, and so, of course, you know, he just got his little fish self in the ocean and swam out to it. Um, but then, you know, I was trying to come out as well. And that was a lot farther than I thought it was. And I was a lot more out of shape than I remember being. Because, as you remember, I am getting to be of a certain age, so it was a little it was a little more challenging than I thought. But I did make it out to the sandbar, um, finally. But it was also kind of scary, because I don't remember ever being that uh, challenged in swimming in the ocean. So, you know, it was, it was kind of crazy. But then it came time to, like, go back into the, sh- into the beach. Um, and so, you know, we started swimming back. I think Jess went first. And, you know, then I reluctantly started trying to float myself back to the shore and, you know, realized that I was, you know, cramping up and not going to make it back to the shore. And I there were there were a good 30 seconds where I legit thought I was going to drown. And here I was uh, without any bathing suit or anything at all on drowning in the ocean in Miami and this was going to be my fate this was going to be the headline and this would be how people would remember me <laughs> but at the last minute after calling out thank god jess came and saved me and pulled me in and it wasn't as dramatic as i remember it being but it also was in that moment so all i could think of was that i'm going to drown nude in miami and that's what everybody's going to remember so <laughs> so that's the story of me almost drowning in miami <laughs> that is almost a florida man story like florida man drowns naked (laughs) in the ocean (laughs) but thankfully it was nowhere near that but it was quite an adventure so anyway back to my rabbit hole thanks to the stonewall reader Um, I discovered that there were actually so many people prior to the Stonewall Uprising who were organizing and working towards the foundations of our equality. And I I started searching for earlier activists and organizations that were the beginnings of our revolution. Um, And it was interesting. The more I've learned and discovered, I feel like we could probably do an entire episode on just each and every one of the people who I kind of discovered through this, this research. Um, and just the amazing organizations that they started and just about the people who, who were behind them. Maybe we should. Maybe we should dive a little bit deeper into each of the people that we've been researching. Um, let us know in the comments. Let us know if you think we should do an episode and talk a little bit more about these um, early activists before Stonewall Uprising. Let us know. 
Okay, I just remembered that it was actually this time last year, well, June of last year, when we were in New York, we were there for a Shanghai Mermaid party, and it also just so happened to be the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, and it was that week with the, that we were there, and it also just so happened to be um, New York was hosting uh, World Pride the next week, and so everything in Manhattan was covered in rainbows, every storefront was supportive and had pride flags and pride displays and you know walking down fifth avenue and every single high-end store on fifth avenue covered in rainbows that was a powerful you know just a powerful thing for me um but and it was you know just such an amazing getaway that week and just a a, just a moment in time that i'm glad that we were able to see um did we also see king kong on broadway that week we did yes we did we actually got to go and see king kong front row in new york that was the most memorable and amazing trip to new york i think i could have ever possibly imagined (laughs) one of them yeah i can't wait until we can travel again it's like the one thing i'm looking forward to just to go to new york and and have a weekend is like i can't wait and and also being right there last year when it happened it's just you know i and that's kind of what i miss about not being able to travel is not being i don't feel like i'm connected to the world like that's what i used to love about new york and philly is i always felt like i was in right in the pulse of the world and you know here in charlotte uh i feel like everyone in charlotte is like five years behind everything else going on in the world so you know for me that's been the biggest struggle um and not and just being in charlotte i guess but right i feel like there are places that are significant um as you know a, a a gay guy kind of in my journey of learning about myself and accepting myself and kind of going through that transition when you start to really accept all parts of yourself and you kind of begin to come into your own identity and, and shed your your own um, misconceptions about all of that. You know, for me, at least, mine was, was my journey kind of was just that. It was a journey. It happened over a lot of different, um, or it, it happened over a, I guess, kind of wide spans of my life and, and is still happening, I think, in a lot of ways. But there are places that are really significant for me through that journey and new york is one of those places it was the first um first place i went right when i graduated and i left home and was out on my own new york was one of the first places that i went and um i remember just being so drawn to that kind of gritty urban energy that um mix of everything of anything like it was just possible to see anything and everything and it kind of gave you this sense this inner sense of freedom to add your own flavor to the mix you know to really kind of spice it up and let yourself let your creativity fly and with style um which you know for me was a big thing um but yeah but new york is just one of those magical places that holds um a lot of significance and being there amidst this historic moment, I think, in um, in gay history, as 
significant or insignificant as it may seem, just being there, or uh, you know, in the the big scheme of things, but just being there amongst this sea of rainbow flags everywhere and seeing everyone so excited and so supportive and just living in that moment and and actually being proud and celebrating. I mean, you could feel it in the air, the excitement, the the energy. It was really magical. And it was definitely um, a privilege to be able to be in the city at that time and be able to visit Stonewall, all dressed up in, in all its glory. Um, so, you know, after starting to dig into the Stonewall Reader, um, I had a couple of good supplemental books that I was reading that we actually already had here in the library, um, which is A Queer History of the United States, which is actually... You know, a pretty great book that's more of a overview of the of the history, but it also does bring in some good other um, activists and people who I was not quite aware of to to kind of start researching. Um, and then also the book that I'm very excited about is called Gay New York, which is a gay male history of New York from 1890 to, to 1940 which is like this time period that I feel like we don't know a lot about. And I'm fascinated with, obviously, you know that. Um, so I'm very excited to learn more about this whole time period. Um, and, and I'm actually really, really fascinated by gay history in the early 1900s. Um, you know, before all the anti-gay propaganda of the 1950s. And let me tell you, if you have never seen any of the, vide the videos of the propaganda, please search YouTube because they, are, they used to be there. I'm sure they're still there. You can see all of the uh, anti-gay propaganda that was you know, just put into the movie theaters and put out to the public back in the 50s, just trying to dissuade the overall population from you know, just giving a negative image to what gay people are um, and making us into perverts and, and pedophiles. So, you know, that's why a lot of people, especially my parents' generation, really have that mindset because that's what they were told. They had no idea. They didn't know any differently. Um, but it was because they were, they were shown that before they went and saw a Disney movie. So, I mean, what else are they going to think? So, you know, it's just, it, it's disgusting how they felt that they could portray us just so that they could kind of sway the public opinion for what they felt was the greater good. And, you know, it's one of those things, I can't remember which book it was I was reading, but it's one of those things they try to do. When you're in a, you're in a nation that, uh, this may actually be guns, germs, and steel, but I can't remember, so don't quote me because I'm probably wrong, but it was that when you're in a nation where you are post-war and you're trying to rebuild the nation, then you have a lot of anti-gay propaganda because you want the nation to to rebuild and repopulate but if you're in a situation where you're socially positive and you don't need to you know rebuild your entire nation then then you're a lot more uh open to and accepting of anything that's not heteronormative so you know just kind of some food for thought um but uh you know and i also used to have this amazing book that was given to me by one of my friends in high school who she's actually now a history teacher um but it actually talked about the gay culture in the south uh the southern parts of the united states prior to the 1950s especially like early 1900s up through the 20s and it was just fascinating how the culture was where you know gay people were a normal part of culture 
Um, and and it was not anything taboo or anything out of the ordinary. It would, it really shocked me. Um, so you know, I've been trying to find another copy of that, but I cannot remember the title or author at all. And I have been looking as hard as I can. So one of the things in all my research was it was so interesting to me how all the pre Stonewall activism was actually happening on the West Coast. Um, you know, for me, I've always felt like everything was East Coast driven, but you know, n- pre Stonewall, it was all happening on the West Coast. So, what what is about the culture there that really propelled their activism much quicker than the East Coast? So, one of the first LGBTQ organizations I could find in my research was the Society for Human Rights, which was established in Chicago in 1924 by Henry Gerber. And they actually published the first gay publication, which was called Friendship and Freedom. Uh, and then the next one that I kind of stumbled on was called Vice Versa, which was another one of the earlier known gay publications. And it was actually started by Edith Ide in June of 1947 in Los Angeles. And it was really focused on more lesbian issues. Um, and it was published from 1947 until 1948. Then kind of the next one in the timeline, which a lot of people have heard about, is called the Mattachine Society, which was founded in 1950 by Harry Hay, which you know I'm sure a lot of you have heard about, as it was kind of one of the most prevalent gay activist organizations in our history. And, and it also really sparked several different chapters um, of the Mattachine Society across the country, which also kind of uh, turned into other versions of other activist groups. Um, and it was extremely active until the uh, national organization, organization actually disbanded in 1961. Um, Harry Hay was, had the first idea of having the activist group in 1948, but didn't really get the buy-in from his friend group and, and from his counterparts until 1950. Uh, and it was originally organized kind of in a similar structure to the Communist Party, um, but you know the naming was actually inspired by a French medieval and Renaissance mask group, which was suggested by James Gruber. Um, membership in California grew to over 2,000 people in 1953, with you know as many as 100 people joining in discussion groups. Uh, I wish I had that kind of participation now. Um, very interesting to note are kind of the primary goals of the Mattachine Society, which this was in 1950. You know, it's number one, unify homosexuals isolated from their own kind. Number two, educate homosexuals and heterosexuals toward an ethical homosexual cultural paralleling the cultures of the Negro, Mexican, and Jewish peoples. Number three, lead the more socially conscious homosexual to provide leadership to the whole mass of social variants. And number four, assist gays who are victimized daily as a result of the oppression. You know, that was, that was 60 years ago, but 70 years ago, but I, I feel like not a lot has changed. Um, Next in the in the timeline kind of was the the Daughters of Belitis, which was founded in 1955 in San Francisco and was the in essence an, a lesbian counterpart to the Mattachine Society. It was founded separately, but then they became uh, kind of 
uh, co-mingled. Uh, I know that they used some space that was uh, rented out from the Mattachine Society to produce their, their first publication. Um, it was founded by Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, and it was the first les lesbian civil rights organization in the United States. The primary publication and method of communication for the Daughters of Blightus was the latter, which was founded in October of 1956 and was the first nationally distributed lesbian publication in the United States and was published until 1972. And so this kind of brings us to an event that was kind of called the uh, San Francisco Stonewall. It was January 1st, 1965 in San Francisco, and there were several homophile organizations in San, in San Francisco who were holding a fundraising ball. And so homophile had become, in those days, the word used to describe gay people kind of prior to the gay liberation movements of the 60s. And it actually had roots in love, or file, from Greek, and of course, homo, meaning the same. So, you know, I also do kind of love the way this is describing us as love versus the just focusing on the sexual part of, of who we are. So, you know, there's several activist groups that are in attendance at this ball, which is including the Mattachine Society, the Daughters of Belitis, the uh, Council on Religion and the Homosexual, which was actually a San Francisco-based organization that was founded in 1964 by the leaders of the Daughters of Belitis and the Glide Memorial Methodist Church. And the purpose was joining gay activists and religious leaders. Um, and then also there was the Society for Individual Rights, which was also founded in 1964 and, and produced the uh, publication Vector. Um, so originally, police had, had agreed not to interfere with the, with the event that evening. But however, on the actual night of the event, police surrounded the California Hall, which is on Polk Street, and, and took photos of every person who entered the ball. And so there were several uh, lawyers who were there in attendance who tried to stop the police from taking photos um, of the guests as they were entering. And then they were also kind of joined with a couple of other heterosexual allies who were also lawyers who were in attendance. This is one of the first key moments where things that are going on in our community were kind of brought to light in the eyes of the law. And so this really was kind of maybe the turning point that, that was the beginning of the revolution and, and where we're going and, and kind of brought to light what needed to happen. And you know, all of this was happening way before 1969. And, and it really blew my mind as I had kind of always grown up thinking that the events of Stonewall were the first time that our revolution had been seen in our history books. So I'm actually extremely excited to finally be starting the During Stonewall section as I'm really anxious to learn about everything that's happened through the eyes of those that were actually there. Um, I've already learned so much about my own history and I can't wait to see what else there is that I ha never knew. It also is really eye-opening to me how much history that I do not know because it's not taught in our schools and, and not talked about in more than superficial conversations usually that happen around Pride season. Uh, I'm also interested to share this information with our younger generations of our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters because I know that they may not fully understand the struggle and, and where we've come from. 
because you know today things look so different than they did even for me when I was growing up as a teenager it's this is a different world so you know as we said before let us know if you want us to do uh, deeper dive episodes of any of these people that we've talked about today um, we'd love to jump in and do research and and learn more and share more about any of these uh, extraordinary activists and and pioneers who really led the way for where we are today huge thank you to everyone listening in um, and to Bran and to everyone that is a part of our history of us I really look forward to diving into new conversations new topics uh, and seeing where it all takes us let us know what you think we want to hear from you um, send us your comments send us your your thoughts let us know what you think so thank you for listening to this week's episode of our history of us and we'll talk to you next week